Welcome to the Road to Success podcast. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Celebrity Speakers New Zealand. And they're Aotearoa's foremost professional speakers and entertainment agency and have been for the last 30 years. Today, my guest is Mike Allsop and he is one of Celebrity Speakers' top keynote speakers. So if you're interested in having him at your next event, then please just head to celebritiespeakers.co.nz and inquire with the friendly team. Until then, enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with pilot, adventurer and author, Mike Allsop. Alrighty, Mike Allsop, mate. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. I obviously don't know you at all. Uh, we've we've met about ten minutes ago, and so in the politest possible way, you seem like you've almost got two very opposite personas. On on one hand, you identify and are and are very often referenced as sort of being a you know a regular guy. You have a, a day job, a family, a kids, and on the other hand, you've done some of the most extreme things that I've ever heard of. And you combine <laughs> those two personas, and in the middle, you pop out. Yeah, it's a bit like that. I um. I like to think of myself as a normal, regular family guy with a full-time job, but I found this way to have some pretty, um, what's the word for it, pretty exciting adventures, uh, and I found the way to just do the things I want to do, and, I, and it's a balance, you know, with my family and my, and my, especially my wife and my my friends and etc. My job, but um, no, I've I've been very blessed that I'm able to do a lot of the stuff that I do, um, and I think it's uh, in some ways it's it's the way modern adventuring is going. You know, there's there's all the full time adventurers out there, and that's you know they're one in a million those guys, and then there's the rest of us that have full time jobs. Kids, wife, all that sort of stuff, and then um, in family, and then we can find a way to do this thing. So um, yeah, and it's 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 an interesting interesting uh, uh, journey to tell the truth. Yeah, well, if you, you said you found a, a balance that allows you to do the things you want to do, and I guess really like you know that's the key to life, isn't it? Being able to you know figure out a way to do everything that you want to do. And I think you know it's interesting you say that. Like I almost think that the people there's the one in a million who do it professionally, and it's probably the same if you use that analogy across you know any you know music or sport. There's a, a very small percentage that get to do something professionally, but uh, with adventuring, I'd probably say that the the people that have to balance jobs and families and lives outside of that is probably a little bit more difficult. It is. Um, I found my balance. Oh, it's just taken a while to find my balance, but it's, it's got to be, especially now. There, there has to be something in it for everybody. So if I go on an adventure, like take for example my last adventure, which was um, just before lockdown, and I rode a motorcycle across the Himalaya and went to sort of the highest road in the Himalayas um, in a place called Muktanau. Uh, you know. My family flew to Singapore and met me. So everybody had something to look forward to. It wasn't just dad going off on an adventure on his own. And I think that's how I found my balance. Whereas the more I give to my family and the more they give to me as well. And it seems to be, it seems to go, the merry-go-round goes the right way. It's great. It's, it's from a place of, of giving, not taking. Yeah, that's a. It has to be that really, if you want that balance. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken to some people that have done some pretty crazy stuff as well, and you know, like a guy that did an, an Ironman, and uh, you know, he had uh, five kids, and you know, anyone that's doing an Ironman or any sort of you know endurance challenge like that, the you almost have to be selfish for you know <laughs> eight nine months of tra- you know training leading up to that. It's yeah. hard to. You need a, a a family that can a is happy with that, but b you know sort of uh, can carry the load that that you can't for that that time. Exactly, exactly. 
So let's talk about the, you know, briefly we'll talk about the the, the regular side. So obviously you're a dad, you've got kids, uh, and and you're an airline pilot as well for Air New Zealand, is that right? Yep, that's right. I'm I'm an A320 captain with Air New Zealand, so I've been with them for 26 years and very proud to fly for the uh, national airline. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, but A320, give me a sense of scale on that. If I don't know the planes. Uh, well, we've got an A320 and an A321. So the A320 fits uh, about 174 people, and mm-hmm. the uh, A321 is about up to 207, I think it is. And so they're the regional jets. So they fly up and down New Zealand into, right, yep. into Queenstown uh, and across to Australia and all around the Pacific Islands as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I, I can imagine that the last couple of years has been hard for most people, but the, um, you know, obviously being in, 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 in travel, the, the, the COVID sort of pandemic has, has really sort of affected airline travel. Oh yeah, it has, and you know a lot of friends have um, been laid off. You know we we lost a lot of people, um, yeah, during the pandemic for sure. Uh, it's starting to come back. You know we can see we can see light at the end of the tunnel now, which is really good. And you know places starting to open up, and it's actually actually quite exciting. So it's a very exciting space to be in, and you know we're ready for the uh, for. <laughs> I think everybody's been cooped up for a couple of years, and they're all going to want to travel, and we're going to be there for them. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I think everyone's excited. Um, and and look, that's kind of your regular side. And I think it was Bear Grylls that described you. you said a regular man who's faced some irregular adventures. So where did this <laughs> desire come from for you to to take on these irregular adventures? Well, I mean, I, I sort of fell into this um, life of adventure. I, st- I I achieved my goal of becoming an airline pilot, and I sort of. I loved my job. It was fantastic, but I wasn't getting out of bed on fire, you know, with this with this purpose and this and this drive. And so I started. So I knew I needed a goal. So I plucked random goals out of the air, and I was going to run a marathon, and I I failed and didn't even start. And I was going to do the coast to coast, and I sort of failed at that as well. And I I took a step back, and I thought I'm not passionate about those things. You know, they're not. I'm not going to bed thinking about them, waking up thinking about them. So. How do you find your passion? Uh, I don't know. So I just started reading, and I spent a lot of time, and I was overseas flying international then, so I spent a lot of time on my downtime overseas going to bookstores and reading lots and lots of books. And I challenged myself to read all of Ernest Hemingway's books. And some of them are great, and some of them are really boring, but some of them really inspired me. And he ran with the bulls in Spain. So I booked my trip. Uh, took my girlfriend, Wendy, but it's now my wife, and we went over together, and I ran with the balls, dressed in my white um, you know, uniform and my red cummerbund with my roll-up newspaper, and it was incredible. And I came home, and it was a really exciting adventure for both of us, and I came home, and you know, I read Hemingway's next book, and I found out he hadn't run with the balls, he'd only watched. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be careful, but... All of a sudden, here's little old Mike Alsop, um, brought up by a solar mum in West Auckland, not a very exceptional life, and I've done an adventure like um, Hemingway had done. So that opened up this this world of belief without a shadow of a doubt. And so then he climbed Kilimanjaro. So I went and climbed Kilimanjaro, went straight to the base camp, and I'm a very big fan. I think, I think we've got this motivation um, thing all wrong. I think action comes first and then motivation comes after that, right? So if you take a small action, you get a bit of small motivation and then, you know, the, the snowball starts. So I 
book my trip, book my tickets, you know, that was my action. And I went over to Kilimanjaro, went right to the base of Kilimanjaro, found an outfitter for $500 and climbed Kilimanjaro, same as Hemingway. And that just opened the floodgates. You know, anything was possible because I started believing I could do it. And then I found, I sort of fell in love with mountaineering um, and started climbing bigger and bigger, bigger mountains. And then eventually, you know, with a lot of um, inspiration, I suppose, from that guy behind me, um, Sered, I suppose. And yeah, I managed to climb Everest and I went on an unguided expedition. I had um, a person manage base camps for me, which, you know, was essential. Uh, they were super experienced. And obviously I had a Sherpa um, and the Sherpa support. Without the Sherpas, no one can get up Everest. And yeah, and I managed to summit Everest unguided. So that was probably, uh, yeah, that's really, really was sort of my my three-minute a summary of of my road to adventure. Yeah, it's a long way from uh, or a short a short uh, explanation of uh, of uh, reading a book in a um, overseas bookstore to uh, climbing Mount Everest. I'm sure there was a, a lot more in the middle, but I liked what you said. We'll come back to Everest in a second, but I liked what you said about um, you know I think most of us have got that motivation equation wrong. That the idea is we think that we sit there and wait to be motivated, and then once we are motivated, then we take that first step. But the 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 key word I think is momentum, and and momentum doesn't you don't get momentum until you until you take the first step, and the first step often seems so insignificant. It's why most people don't take it. They're like, oh, what on the on the scale of of you know me climbing Mount Everest, you know, um, you know, going to Spain to run with the bulls seems you know almost polar opposite. But you don't get it's, there's a metaphor. You don't get the first one without you don't get the second one without the first one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just taking that first step. I mean, the thought of climbing Mount Everest, you know, unguided with a Sherpa on summit day. That's just crazy, and that's overwhelming. It's even overwhelming for me to think about it now. So I wouldn't think about that. I'd just think about the, the steps in front of me. Um, I can't remember who who said the quote when they said, I've lost my way, and then they said, was it Winnie the Pooh? I can't remember. And they said, can you see the first – can you see just the step in front of you? Well, that's your way. Just take that first step. And so that's with action. Just take that first action. You know, if you um, – if you're if you don't know what to do, just sit down and start Googling stuff, you know, and, and that's your action. And you'll find a little bit of momentum. Once you've got that thing that like you said, momentum, hey, you're off. You're absolutely off. I mean, and there's lots of tools. I, I talk about having a toolbox. And what I do when I go and talk to people is I I tell them really exciting stories and I tell them how I go about doing these things with all my with my tools in my toolbox. And it's up to them to see what tools they can use and, and that sort of stuff. And I think the most important thing is that you keep developing yourself. And so that's probably the, the most important thing. I'm always curious and hungry to try to keep developing myself all along the way. And I, I, I sort of don't stop. I've sort of got that passion, which really helps. Yeah, I've I've found you know uh, throughout my life and certainly throughout talking to some incredible people on the on the podcast is that the a burning desire to get better is synonymous with all successful people. It is absolutely no one was born successful. You mm -hmm. know, we might have had a, some people might have had a bit more luck or a bit more help, but at the end of the day, every single successful person has actually really done the work. You they yeah. really have. And when you see people standing on top of Mount Everest and you look around, or you're back at base camp and you see all the all the summiteers, they are a wide variety of people, but every single one of them is super successful in their own way. You know, not monetary. Um, some are monetary, obviously, but some of them are really successful. Well, they all are really successful in their own way.
Mm. And so let's, let's talk about Everest a little bit because you know you you sort of say you know relatively flu- you know like flippantly like oh, we, we climbed Everest unguided like 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 you know most people have probably you know seen a documentary or something about it. But wh- how long's the actual process? Like so you know when you said right you know I'm I'm going to climb Everest to you reaching the top and then coming home again. What's that time frame like? Well, for me, you know, you have to have about, well, I had eight years experience. So I went down to a little company called Aspiring Guides in Wanaka. And uh, I didn't tell them I wanted to climb Everest because I was embarrassed and and didn't want to tell anybody because I was afraid I was going to fail. And we can talk about the fear of failure for for a lot because the fear of failing has killed more dreams than actually failing has. So I went down and um, didn't tell anyone I wanted to climb Everest. Uh, aspiring guides were amazing um, to me. They turned me into a really hardcore mountaineer. They showed me how to climb really hard. Um, and I did a couple of um, sort of real serious trips with them and then slowly, you know, started doing bigger and bigger mountains. So New Zealand's got some amazing, some of the most amazing mountains in the world from a technical point of view, and they're very dangerous as well, so you have to be careful. And I reduce that risk by going guided. So if anybody wants to go and climb, take a guide. You know, they're professional. They, you know, they, they, you know, your risk goes down so much with a guide. Um, and then it was literally... Yeah, one step in front of the other and bigger and bigger mountains. It took me about probably seven years to get, have enough experience and to actually get onto this particular um, uh, team that I wanted to get onto because the guy wouldn't take you unless you had experience and got onto the team. And uh, yeah, like I said, he provided all the logistics. But the most important thing about this particular um, person, his name is Henry Todd, is he had been there already for probably 15 years when I was there. So he had seen that experience of the weather and, you know, incidents and events and accidents. And so he was, you know, super experienced with it. And I needed that to to manage me. Even though I had to climb myself, I had to carry all my own gear. They gave us camp, uh, a really good uh, base camp and a really good camp too. Everything else, um, the Sherpas would set up the camps for us sometimes, um, which is great. And But we had to carry our own food and all of our own gear. But the most important thing is the Sherpa um, carried all of the uh, oxygen to the South Pole. And then on summit night, um, they matched a, a, the clients with particular Sherpas, depending on your skills. I had a couple of friends, and but they didn't match me with my friends. Um, they matched me with a Sherpa called Lakpa. And Lakpa, I think he had climbed it once before. He was quite young. I think he might have been 19 or 20. And um, the two of us, off we went. And um, yeah, without Lakpa, I mean... In my book, I passed out. I ran out of oxygen and Lakpa yeah. found me and um, saved my life. And so um, without Lakpa, I'd, I'd still be on the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Tell <laughs> so, me, I, uh, I, I did know that. Tell, tell me that story because that's, that's incredible. Well, I sort of, um, Lakpa and I, I was, I was sort of leading going first and there's a fixed rope, there's a fixed line and the Sherpas have put the line in before. So Lakpa was behind me, but Lakpa was carrying two bottles of spare oxygen, one spare bottle for me and a spare bottle for him as well. So, And he's carrying his own bottle. So his pack was incredible, incredibly heavy. And we got up to the south summit and then he met his brother on the south summit. And so then I climbed down um, down a little bit onto the ridge, you know, the very knife-edge ridge that you see in all the big photos. And um, then Lakpa, so then Lakpa came down and we worked away across the ridge up the Hillary step and there were some people coming down. So we sort of got separated. So I carried on uh, and I got to probably, oh, I'd say, I remember because Everest sort of shallows off at the top and it's a nice walk in for about the last 20 minutes to the summit. And I remember thinking, wow, this, this is incredible. You're going to climb Everest. 
I've got past the hardest part. And then I started to get really disorientated and I started to stagger. And then I got really dizzy and I sort of slumped forward and I slumped onto my one knee and, and I'm pushing on my axe trying to get up. And, and then I just collapsed into the snow and I turned around and I'm sitting out right from the summit. And I mean, that's my summit <laughs> cut out there. And um, I'm sitting right out looking out you know, from the top of Everest and my vision starts doing this and all the colors going. And I remember thinking 40 people have vanished in this spot uh, on this ridge and I'm about to vanish. And then I felt this big tap on my shoulder, and it was Lakpa, and he knew what had happened. I'd run out of oxygen, and he changed my bottle, and he saved my life. I Hand stood of up. God, eh? Oh, yeah, I stood up, and I, we came around the corner. No one else was there, just Lakpa and I, and I saw that summit, and I thought, holy smoke. Um, I felt a tear sort of trickle down underneath my goggle, and then something clicked, and there was no space for emotion. You know, your eyeballs were freeze for a start. <laughs> it's just too dangerous. And I looked at Lakpa and said, let's go, man. Couple of photos, one phone call, and we're gone, and we we stood up there for a couple of minutes. Wow! And um, did it feel as good as you thought it was going to feel? No, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I mean, that's that's that shot there is a cutout of me actually standing on the summit that the publisher for my book did, and um, so I was standing there behind those goggles. I'm absolutely terrified. And people say to me, you know, you conquered Everest. And I went to see Sir Edmund, and uh, when I came back, and I told him, you know, people keep saying this, and he sort of, I never forget, he was sitting in his chair, and he had his whiskey, and uh, he had his glasses, and he put his glasses on the end of his nose, and he sort of looked over his glasses, and he put his whiskey down, and he goes, you know, Mike, the only thing we conquered was ourselves on Everest, and and I, I really like that, it's, it was true. I yeah. rang my wife, and then we just got down, it was just too too frightening, it really was. Yeah, yeah. And what's the what's the actual climbing time frame from from top uh, from bottom to top and then back down again? Is it is it a two weeks or a three days or so? So if Kathmandu to uh, New Zealand to New Zealand was a hundred days. Um, wow. So I got to base camp. I think I got there on the tenth of April, and I left base camp on the around the thirty first of May. So that was six yeah. weeks on the mountain. Yeah. Far out. And tell me, um, you see these pictures and stuff online now. Maybe it's changed since, since you've done it. Of just these huge queues of people, like yeah. you know, it's almost like it's a. I don't want to say bastardized, but it doesn't. Is that? Did you experience that? No, no. That's just a moment in time. Um, you know that everything is sort of that was in two thousand and well, it's happened a couple of times. But the weather goes bit bit south, and everybody tries to climb all at once. And you know the weather windows, and people are panicking, wanting to climb. So yeah, no, it does happen. But you don't go to Everest thinking it's you're in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. You know you <laughs> go there with a good attitude because yeah, you're going to be around people. And they're yeah. brilliant to talk to. Once you once you break that ice and talk to somebody, especially as a New Zealander on Everest, it's a really cool place to be. It's really neat. Yeah, I can imagine. And and also, um, you know, I've I've when I've been reading about you that um, you know on the way up, you you actually see people who haven't made it. Yeah, yeah, that's quite frightening because you know there was a a group of from the army and um, they were the well. I knew who they were. They were the special branch, let's say. Um, and they were saying it's the hardest thing they've ever done. And they had just done it the day, a couple of days before me. <laughs> so when you hear those type of guys talking like that and seeing their physical physicalness or how wrecked they are, it's quite frightening. And that's where you've got to be very mindful not to worry about that and just focus on what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because you could easily overwhelm, get overwhelmed really easily. Yeah, I can so, imagine. And like, you know, do you literally see, you know, people who have passed away climbing the mountain? Yeah, 
Well, you do. Like, um, but you, I mean, you have to look for them. So, well, yeah. sorry. In saying that, um, like at, at the South Coal, there are people, uh, you know, buried in the snow around the place, and so that's not very nice. And if you look for them, there's you could probably see at least twenty or thirty people still left there, um, but they, you don't actually see them, you know, that much. Um, when mm. you walk up, uh, you know, I saw a couple of people still there, and that, but I didn't look. You know, somebody mm. said, "Oh no, there's a guy sitting over there." I wouldn't look. I just yeah. look because it would would throw me off what I was trying to do. Yeah, so a, a, a harrowing reminder, I guess, of of how tough the task at hand actually is. Well, especially when you see somebody that you know, you know, like I saw, sadly, Scott Fisher out of the book Into Thin Air. I saw him. Um, he was lying there with his bag on his head, and I. He's an incredible climber. He's an incredible person. He climbed Everest without oxygen, and he climbed K two. And here am I walking past his dead body. That that is yeah, that's his next level. Um, you know, trying to get that out of your mind. Yeah, yeah. So. And I can only imagine um, when you, you you've done it, and you, you know you said at the top there's no time for emotion, which is completely understandable. Climbing down is is probably I understand actually most people um, the, the the fatalities tend to be when people are going down rather than up. Yeah. Um, you know, once you're, it's sort of said and done, is the you know after spending so long, you know, seven years you spent uh, you know of training to do it, do you? Does it feel as satisfying as you as you think, or is it sort of like do you start thinking what next, or what, what's that sort of accomplishment feeling like? Well, there, there's only two times I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, this is incredible what you've done." It's only twice, and once was when my wife said something to me on the phone when I got down to base camp, and and I thought, "Oh, actually, you're right. This is." crazy and then I remember taking the last glimpse of Everest as I walked out of the mountains and looked back at, at, at Everest and remember thinking I just have no idea how I did that um, yeah there was a bit of downtime when I came home that that I struggled but I went back to my toolbox and I started just coming up with ideas and let myself dream and I read lots of books and then I found my next um, my next adventure which was the seven marathon seven days mm. seven continents run so um, no that that's yeah it seemed to work all right yeah, and that's the that's the most horrific thing I've ever heard of, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. <laughs> that that's triple seven, but um, the the one thing I, I like, you know, about when I came across your story, and it's sort of um, as I mentioned at the start, you've got two these two different personas, is that you've imagined you've you've found a way to include your family in your adventure life, and you've done some pretty special stuff with with your kids as well. Yeah, so I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, take Ever- take Everest, all the adventures. There's nothing comes close to to children. So people with children out there, just you know, know that there's there's nothing comes close to them. So I found a way. Actually, I've written a book. Hang on, here it is. So I wrote um, this. This is my second book, and that's about adventures with my kids. So my wife's quite smart, and I said to her, she came up to get me from Everest, right? And I was a mess, but I was excited because I had a job offer the next year on Everest. And I said to her, hey, I've got this job offer. I can work on Everest. Won't get paid much, but I, but all my, 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 my climbing will be covered. And she said, look, if you need to climb Everest, Mike, don't worry, we'll find a way. She didn't mean it <laughs> at all. <laughs> what she was doing was giving me space to work out myself that, in all honesty, my children need a dad more than I need to go and climb Everest. So when I took a step back, it was actually the connections with the Sherpa and the and the especially the Nepalese people that that meant so much to me. So with her, it was her idea when each child turned seven, it was compulsory they had to come to Everest with me. And so I took them just one on one, me and them, no one else. Um, lots of people wanted to come with us, and I 
turned everybody down. It was just the child, myself, and we trekked probably halfway to base camp, stayed with my Sherpa friends, and um, just had a magic one-on-one time. And that that sort of filled my little adventure tank, and it was something really special with the kids that they look back on. Um, and yeah, that was that was quite neat, and so that that really helped me as well. Yeah, that's an amazing way to, to include it. I think, yeah, and I've you know done some things, nothing compared to what you have, but I've done a few things, and and um, you know people always you know tell you about how having kids will change your life, and then all of a sudden you you know you hold your you know, your your daughter or your son, and then you start you know when they're born, and the whole world sort of seems to you know collapse into this little yeah. you know, bundle, and then yeah, you know, as they get older, you start doing more things with them, and and that yeah is the is the highest high you can certainly ever feel, or I've ever felt anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and let's talk about this um, this this triple seven thing because this is this is probably the most outrageous <laughs> thing. I've spoken to some um, some some mad people. I actually spoke to a guy I had on the podcast, and he did it. He did, you've probably heard of it. He, there's a thing called Everesting, which is, doesn't involve the mountain, but you find a hill and you figure out how many times the the, the and so during the initial lockdown in 2020, he had about eight steps in his garden, and he figured out that he needed to climb them about three and a half thousand times or something um, in a 24 hour <laughs> period to. Have done Everest, and so he did that, and I, you know, he was going dizzy and and all sorts doing that. But uh, but running seven marathons in seven days and seven continents is uh, trumps nearly anything I've heard of. And so, at the start, <laughs> you actually, when you mentioned this, I, I, when you very started this conversation, you said that you tried a marathon and failed, and you it, it was because yeah. you found something that you weren't passionate about. Yeah. How the hell do you go from not being passionate about running a marathon to deciding to run seven and seven days and seven continents? Well, I needed to find something that wasn't, that was just as crazy as Everest, that was way out there, had huge, huge risks, but not the risk of getting killed, so the risks of failing. So I read Serrano Fine's book, and um, and he was the first guy to do it uh, with his friend. And the second I read that paragraph, I thought, that's it, I, I, I'm doing that. Sat down with Wendy, and I said, look, I won't train outside school hours. I'll train only inside school hours unless I have to do a big run. Um, And so that worked out really well for the family. And it was only seven days. And then I trained, but I I overtrained, and I was afraid I was going to fail. So I pushed myself too much, and I put a stress fracture on my lower spine. And I never forget, I remember being on the, we're all ready to go. We, I had everything, you know, two weeks uh, and I was off. And I was on the phone to the National Business Review giving a, a, a phone interview. And I turned around and there's Wendy on the back steps with tears coming down her eye, out of her eyes and down her cheeks. And she's on the phone to the um, doctor and the doc's saying, oh, I've just got his MRI results and he's got a stress fracture in his spine. He ain't going anywhere. So... That was devastating. So I had to regroup, um, and it took about eight months to um, before I managed to train train up again. I never ever started a stopwatch again. I just ran for, and I I had worked out. I hated running. I still hate running. Like hate running, but I love the adventure. So the adventure what was driving me, and running was just my vehicle to get that adventure. Once I worked that out. I was off. And so, um, yeah, I, was, I think I was the third or the fourth person in the world to do it. And I went to the Falkland Islands, sits on the continental shelf of Antarctica, and waited for a week um, and then ran a marathon, hopped on an airplane, went over to uh, well, why do you wait a week? Why do you wait a week there, sorry? Is that oh, there's only, there's only one flight a week. 
Oh, I see. So, yeah. So yeah, you've got no choice. So very, very interesting place. Um, as soon as the Falkland Island people work out you're not Argentinian, they, they really like you, especially when they find out you're a Kiwi, they love us even more. Um, so I had, I had a cup of tea with the Governor General and, and all sorts. It was fantastic. Uh, and then I went to Chile, uh, to Santiago, and ran a marathon there on my own. Uh, that's where one of my knees blew out. I gave myself runner's knee, and so I hobbled, got on the aeroplane, went up to Los Angeles and Air New Zealand had a huge team um, to meet me up there and they helped. Uh, that's when my other knee went and so we strapped my knees up, got on an Air New Zealand aircraft, flew straight to London, jumped off that aeroplane, um, got a physio, checked my knees, they were all, all okay and then I started running, uh, straight on another aeroplane to Morocco in Africa, um, back up to, um, where is it, up to London and then straight over to Hong Kong and then flew home, ran the last one at home. And so I finished all seven within the end of the seventh day. We raised quite a lot of money for Kids Can New Zealand, so that was really, really awesome. Um, and yeah, it was a, an adventure, I tell you, <laughs> a real adventure. It's the, it's the most outrageous thing I've heard. I, I um, you know, first of all, what was it like? You know, you sort of glazed over it, but I'm sure it wasn't that simple when, you know, you're, you're a week away from leaving and you find out that, you know, I, I, I understand, I, maybe not to the same degree, but I understand the level of preparation that goes into organizing these sort of things. And also with, with something that involves your fitness, you have to work so hard just to get your, yourself to that, to that level of fitness to be able to do it. To then be delayed eight months means that, you know, the training's almost the hardest part. I mean, it's like another eight months of, of training ahead of you. How did you yeah. how did you stay in the game mentally when that happened? I had a really awesome coach, uh, and Lisa Tamati was helping me quite a bit, and she's, you know, one of New Zealand's legendary ultra runners, so she was amazing. And um, so I spoke to her quite a bit, and then I didn't overtrain. In fact, I undertrained. And I just listened, listened to what Lisa said. And she said, don't start training until you're about three or four months out. So I started training four months out and just rested the rest of the time. Um, kept myself sort of motivated by, you know, I mean, I lost $16,000 worth of airfares and hotels because I didn't have any travel insurance because we hadn't started the trip. So that was pretty devastating. But no, I just, I went back to the basics, looked after myself, um, talked to my, my partner, you know, to Wendy about it, talked to my mates, um, and I didn't let myself get down. Um, you know, that was that was the most important thing. I think if mm. I'd let myself get down or get depressed about it, then I would have to fight back through that and then carry on. Yeah. I certainly had my moments where I was annoyed and upset about it all, but I kept saying to myself, if you don't give up, you can't fail because you're always moving towards that goal. So I never gave up. There was at no point did I say, I'm giving up. A couple of times I said, I might do it in five years, but and but that's still okay. You haven't given up because you, you haven't you haven't stopped. Yeah. And and so I mean that's 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 great advice there is that you know the only failure is actually is giving up and um you know you certainly require that sort of approach uh, encountering you know what you did but you know I'm curious a, a bit more into the sort of intricacies of, of of how it's done because you know if you did that just the plane rides for seven days I can imagine that's tough on your body you then go and throw a marathon in at each spot along the way like how do you like are you you know you're sleeping in the plane i assuming literally getting yeah. off and stretching and trying to like how do you even do it <laughs> well yeah slept on the plane quite a bit and but you got to be um you have to be like i say traveling as a kiwi on an adventure is amazing because so on uh what was it virgin atlantic you know their crew found out what i was doing 
and they made a PA to all the passengers for donations for my charity. And I think I got something like a thousand pounds given to me. Uh, And then the crew moved all these people around because they couldn't put me in business class um, because they had oversold it. So they moved all these people around and gave me a massive, big, long um, seat at the back so I could lie down. Uh, From the from the and with um, the the land chili, they. Uh, on the way down, they put, they upgraded me to first class, which was great, but I didn't need it then. And on the way back, they were over full. But the lady next to me in the seat, she said, I'm going to go for a walk for four hours. You just lie down in my seat. So I just lay down in the seat. So you, you make it up. I mean, we, we're, you know, when you're desperate and you've got, you know, no options, you know, you're very, very, very resourceful. Mm. You know, you're really resourceful. You know, I was talking to doctors about, Venus return, and I was worried about blood clot, and do I take aspirin, do I do this? And they were like, no, just wear skins, so I'd wear um, like a one-piece, no, well, two-piece skins on top and bottom when I was flying um, for recovery. And I actually never got sore muscles. I got sore joints, but I never got any lactic acid buildup. Um, and, you know, specialized help from from people. The more help I asked for, the more the more uh, from coaches and people that helped me, the more I received, and the, and the easier it made it, to tell the truth. Yeah. And... Um like how, how I know you said you don't use a stopwatch. Do you know how fast what what your marathon times were at all? At all? Oh, I don't yeah. So when I was running the marathon, I was in training. I didn't use my stopwatch. Oh, yeah. um, but no, uh, the I wanted my perfect marathon to be four hours fifty nine. Mm-hmm. And when you put that in your subconscious for months and months and months and months. You, you can guess what my first marathon was. It was four hours 59 on the dot. It was crazy. And then I think my, uh, they're all about five hours 15, five hours 25, except the one in Morocco that ended up being over six hours because I, my legs, uh, my feet uh, were really sore. So um, I, I was sponsored by a big company called USANA. They make um, pharmaceutical grade um, uh, nutrition and, and vitamins and minerals and all sorts. And mm-hmm. I rang one of their docs and they put me on some uh, really good calcium, magnesium, and that, that actually stopped my feet from hurting so having that support network is super important as well really yeah, is yeah. but the, at the end of the day when I look back at it and I sat there and I, I was sitting there with a beer I mean the thing that got me was human beings are incredible I didn't think of myself as incredible I didn't think of that in the slightest I was just thinking about how when we put our mind to something we are absolutely incredible as human beings. And you know that. I mean, you've, you, know, you've, you wrote that rickshaw from the top of India to the bottom of India. And that's, that's an incredible feat, you know? And so whatever we put our mind to and what we believe we can do, we can actually go and achieve it. But the secret is, is trying to find that passion and trying to find it. And that, that's, that's the struggle. That's the hard thing for most people and for me as well. Mm. I mean, so how do we do it? Do you have any ideas? I mean, obviously you found yours in books. Do you, uh, you know, do you have any insight on? Because uh, I think you're right. I think if you find something that, um, you know, that that really drives you and really excites you, it's not about having resources; it's about being resourceful. And I think if you are, yeah. if you if you're really passionate about something, you you just get immensely resourceful, and you and you figure out a way to to get things done. Um, is yeah. there? You know, do you have any advice for people that are looking to find something to that they're passionate about? It is, you know, very hard to do. Well, I I'm always curious, like I say, but I've got a I've got a, a quote that I I, I um, took me probably 25 years to actually um, put this quote onto onto paper. It's called momentary courage. Um, you don't have to be um, you don't have to be brave all the time. In fact, you can't be brave all the time, but you just have to have the courage to take the first step. And I call it momentary courage. It's a moment that changes your life. And it's just that first step to take that action. And then you'll find your motivation and you'll find your momentum. So as an example, 
my most favorite client I've ever had that climbed Kilimanjaro with me. She was terrified. She was in, in mid-40s, terrified of the thought of climbing Kilimanjaro, but she had this dream to do it. And so she said, how do I get motivated to do it? And I said, take some action. She goes, what action? I said, email me. Just send me an email. And then we'll start. And so she sent me an email, emailed her back. Next thing, you know, a couple of weeks down the line, she paid a deposit. You know, I made it sure that she knew the deposit wasn't refundable after a certain time. So there's a bit of pressure, there's a bit of momentum. Cut a long story short, I remember she turned up at the base of um, Kilimanjaro and we were sitting in this really nice sort of hotel and we're drinking gin and tonics and her hands are shaking and she's drinking a gin and tonic. And I said, what, what's wrong? She goes, I'm just so frightened about tomorrow. And I said, you've done it. You're here. Just turn up tomorrow with all your gear and you watch what happens. And she turned up the next day. She um, put her gear on and within 10 minutes of trekking, she was on fire. You know, she was going nice and slow, doing everything. And she just went from strength to strength to strength to strength. And she summed to Kilimanjaro, no problem in the slightest. And that's the power of taking, having the courage, just the momentary courage. If you think about the, the end result, it's just too overwhelming, right? But she had the momentary courage to start, take the little action, and then the ball started rolling and, and off she went, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's the biggest key. I've heard it described as 30 seconds of courage, you know, similar sort of concept. And it is, it's yeah. often just, and it is, it's as simple as the first email. It's the question, yeah. the phone call, you know, the the, the decision. I, Tony Robbins always says change actually happens in an instant. You know, it happens the second you decide that, you know, I do, I don't, you know, will you marry me? I'm leaving. Can we do it? You know, whatever it is, yeah. you know, like, and uh, and and it's just that that 30 seconds of courage and it's a, or momentary courage as you call it. It's a, um, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be often, I don't find either. You know, if you if you had you know momentary courage, you know, once a month, you know, or once a week, you'd probably find that your life could look pretty different. Exactly, uh, absolutely, exactly. And I think always staying curious, you know, and find like I um you know I I use journals, so I've got a and I use what's called um they're called best self journals and that's the best one I've found. And I, so I can put all my thoughts into, I mean, I don't journal every day, but I have pages where I write ideas and, and I'm always brainstorming coming up with you know, my next adventure and what I want to do. And, and once I start thinking about it and it's funny you mentioned Tony Robbins because I started listening to him again, uh, like a week and a half ago. And in two days I did all of his, the edge um, stuff again and you know, he says, if you dream it, it's just a dream, but when you schedule it, it becomes real. And that's what I do with all my adventures. So I'm going to Nepal, to the Mustang Valley, on my motorcycle with a group of people that want to come along. I don't invite them. They, they're just, it's a word of mouth. If you ride a motorcycle, you're more than welcome to come. Um, and we're going to go and explore sky caves in the Mustang Valley. And I know that's going to happen in 2024. Um, and as you know, sure as anything, 2024 is going to come around, especially as you get older, you know, time flies by. So once you've scheduled, scheduled it and you've thought about it and you're doing it, that's it. You know, yeah. you're, you're off. Yeah, it's certainly a good way to start. I'm a big believer in journaling as well, and I, I you know, have mine here as well. But, you know, I, I always, um, you know, I, I started about maybe six years ago now, gosh, six years, yeah. And so I just got into, I heard and read about this idea of called like a gratitude practice or whatever, and I sort of adapted it slightly. And I, I'd write on 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 one on, on a page just all the, I call them my celebrations, all the wins that I've had in the last week, the things that I've done well or the, you know, the steps that I took that I was, you know, um, maybe that took a bit of courage or, or, or whatever. And then um, I sort of figured out this idea of, um, all right, well, that's what 
that's what I've 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 celebrated and doing the week before. And then on the other page, now I start writing. Or what am I going to do this week? That then becomes a celebration for next week. You know, like and you sort of reverse engineer it what you want, and then it sort of evolved over time. And um and and I don't know what it is, and, and not many people can. You know, there's probably some sort of neurological um you know concept behind it. But once you start writing things down, once you start scheduling them, once you start planning, and as soon as you take that first step, it's remarkable what actually unfolds it is without a shadow of a doubt and and it, it really is and i think i think that's the key for me is is planning so i've always planned so far in advance mm-hmm. and that um or dreams so far in advance and you know the same as like with what tony robbins says you tell people that you that you trust and you care about you don't have to tell everybody a lot of people make this mistake of getting onto social media and telling everybody what they're going to do and their plans and their dreams i mean yeah that puts a lot of pressure on you because there's a lot of you know, that's a different funny space out there. I can't get my head around the, um, a lot of the social media stuff at the moment. I really yeah. can't. Yeah, it is very bizarre. And it's certainly, I think there's some unintended consequences that we're sort of now only starting to realise. It's an interesting thought. So so when I, you mentioned before, when I decided to ride that uh, rickshaw across India, I was sort of like kind of documenting the process and I, I did it all. And and so what I started doing is I I I, I, I Whenever I told someone, I gave them like a a, a, a little notepad, and and I'd say, look, I'm going to tell you something in a minute, and I want you to write down what you think. And so, you know, I'd tell them that I want to ride this rickshaw from the top to bottom of India. We wanted to raise fifty grand for charity. Pretty much that sentence. And then I'd say, what what do you think? And just write down whatever comes to your mind. And um, it was really remarkable the difference in people's thoughts. You know, and I didn't didn't hold anything against anyone, but it was remarkable that, that you know, some people, you know, here's a, a contrast. So both family members, one of them said uh, $50,000 is pathetic, up your goal. And another one another one said, you'll get so sick you won't make it. And it, it was two it was two very different opinions to the to the same thing, and I learned that lesson then, and, and I sort of didn't take it to heart, but it was a it was an interesting um, insight into you know if you played that out and you listened to either one of those people solely, it would completely affect the outcome of the of the activity, and it's just yeah. a, you know, you mentioned there, you know, like tell the people that are important, and I, I think that's a, a really key thing. It's a, you know, we glorify the idea of jumping on and, you know, telling everyone in the possible universe that you can reach that you want to do something, but I think the uh, the best way to do it is to tell someone, tell the people you know are going to support you hell or high water, and those, yeah. they tend to be the uh, the angels on your shoulder that are in your ear rather than the, the devil. Oh, exactly. And I've, I've, I've had the same experience with you. I've had people tell me I'm crazy, tell me I'm stupid, tell me it's this and that and everything and really try and put me off. I've had people saying to me, you can't go. There's just no way. You should not be doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And so you know, I'm very careful who I tell. I only tell I, mainly Wendy. You know, she's she knows me and, you know, she – but she knows my limits as well because sometimes you do need a confident person that will say, actually, no, this you can't do this. I mean, I was invited to climb K2 with a really amazing team and I told Wendy about it and she looked at me and she goes, that's another wife and another life. Yeah, that was a way of going and I, I sort of stopped and thought, yeah, actually, no, nah, being a dad, I shouldn't be climbing K2. There's no way. And so, yeah. So that's yeah. You do have to you do you do have to you know choose who you who you com, who you confide in. 
mm, and, and, and pick your battles and, and listen to your wife is probably good advice as well. <laughs> yeah. um, you also managed to run the, I mean, if, if your list of achievements wasn't, uh, you know, as, as already, you know, long enough already, you ran the, the world record for the highest ever marathon. Yeah. Now, so unofficial, unofficially, I can't find anywhere else, anywhere in the world that anyone's done it any higher. Um, but there's two reasons why I haven't gone to the Guinness. One is because the Everest Marathon, which starts at base camp, I climbed up a mountain next to uh, base camp called Kalapatar, and it's about probably, oh, I think it's another 1,000 feet higher than base camp, and I started my marathon from there. And then I ran down, ran over this thing called the Chola Pass, and I ran around, whereas the Everest Marathon just goes straight from base camp straight to Namshi Passar downhill. So, but I didn't want to um, cut that person's cheese because they uh, obviously employ lots of local people. They obviously um, do you know some good work for the communities as well, and it's their business as well. And I'm not, I'm not, um, I don't want to, to do anything else. So I haven't pushed it officially, but yeah, you, there's not. I don't think anyone else is running a marathon higher than that. I, I'm not I'm not challenging the uh, <laughs> the the the. Um the validity of it at all, I, 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 it's unbelievable. I, I read that it was minus thirty-two degrees Celsius. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cold, uh, and I couldn't. Uh, I had to put, um, you know, like uh, face coverings over my my mouth when I was when I was running because the cold was just just horrendous. You know, it, it really was. So yeah, no, that was um, that was quite exciting. That marathon. Again, it was a venture. It, it was a venture, and I did it with my Sherpa friends. Mm-hmm. And my one of my really close Sherpa friends, his name was Tindu. Sadly, he was killed on um, in the mountains, and a lot of the Sherpas, you know, it's just so sad, and it's just so rough their life. Um, and so, anyway, Tindu and I ran this part of this marathon together. And I remember he said to me, "Hey, I'll run ahead." Um, and I'll get into this um, uh, tea house for you, Mike, and I'll, I'll get everything sorted out. And he got there, and I've never in my life ever seen a Sherpa exhausted, except for this one day. And Tindu was absolutely, absolutely exhausted. And he sort of looked at me, gave me a big hug, and I went on to the next next bit, and I was just going slow, and, um, and he gave me a massive big hug. And it was it was really special just to do it with your Sherpa friends. It really was. It was really, yeah. really cool. And it sounds like, you know, over the over the years of going there, you've developed quite a sort of relationship. I know there was the, the artifact that you, you, you returned <laughs> yeah. at some stage as well. It seems like you've sort of developed, a, you know, a bit of a relationship with the, with the Nepalese and particularly with some of the Sherpas? Yeah, I really like, I, I love Nepal. Nepal is amazing. Uh, it really is. Um, you know, we, we flew to Delhi once with my son and it just felt, I don't know, it, every turn I went, it felt like people were trying to rip me off and get stuff off me. And, you know, it was, and then I got to Nepal and my son's wallet fell out of his pocket in the middle of the street and had all his money in it. He had $50 in it and uh, he was seven and a shopkeeper saw it, ran across the road, picked it up, chased us down the street and gave it back to us. And so it's a really, I don't know, I really like like Nepal and I really like the people and the Nepalese are very, very kind hearted and then you take it to the Sherpa people and they're, they're you know, they're, and the Sherpa are a, are a you know, a tribe of people that live in the mountains, and um, and it's just they just take it to another level. They're just amazing, and especially when they've seen my kids grow up. So my my daughter's been there four times, and so they um, they um, you know they they love seeing her as well, and she loves it just as much. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, 
and what an you know what an amazing relationship for them to cultivate at such a young age as well. Um, the artifact. I mean, it sounds like Indiana Jones. T- t- tell me quickly about sort of you know I don't don't, don't mean that in any sort of uh, you know offence at all. But uh, you know, returning a, a a replica artifact to them obviously is a, a, a cool story in its own. Well, so uh, in this little village called Pangbashe, which is where a lot of the Sherpa come from, uh, and if you go into any family in Pangbashe, they would have lost either a father or a husband or a son on Everest, right? So it's quite, it is very sad. And they had a little monastery, and the monastery, I think, goes back oh, over 1,500 years. And, you know, this tiny little monastery, and it had a, a hand of a yeti and a skull of the yeti. And uh, Sir Edmund Hillary went and examined it, and he quickly found that the skull um, was probably made from a, uh, like a deer, but the hand, they didn't know what the hand was. So that was his, his experience. Um, and then uh, a, a, a cryptozoologist went up there, um, and I actually can't remember his name, and he managed to, well, one story is he got the monks drunk, and he cut two fingers off the thumb and the forefinger off this hand and then he wired cadaver like human fingers onto this hand and he was given the cadaver fingers from Oxford University so then he took these fingers back and he he smuggled them out of the country and he got them to India to Darjeeling and then he gave them to Jackie Stewart Jackie Stewart is a very, very famous um, American uh, actor. And Jackie Stewart's wife smuggled them in her lingerie box. And she had a box with all her lingerie in it. And when Jackie Stewart and his wife ended up in England on the train from India, all their stuff had been searched by customs, except for her lingerie box. And she asked the customs officer, why did you not check my lingerie box? And the customs officer said, a British uh, customs officer has more dignity to, to inspect a woman's lingerie box which is great because the fingers were, were hidden in there. Mm. And they took them to Oxford University, and Oxford University um, uh, looked at them, and they couldn't decide what they were. They weren't human. So then it disappeared, right? And, and so, sorry, I'll back up a little bit. And then Sir Edmund Hillary examined the fingers, uh, the hand, and then his physicians and his um, team, uh, and there were some doctors on the team, said that some of the bones look human, the other ones they don't know, which was correct. Anyway, cut a long story short, they got the whole thing got and the skull got stolen in the early nineties. And when it got stolen, they stole that the monastery's little income. So no one would go up to the monastery anymore. So I wanted to actually make a replica and take it up and and, um, and actually you know replace their their stolen income. So I managed to get an introduction to Weta Workshops and uh, Sir Richard Taylor um, was really into it and he built these for me for free. I took them back up. There was a lot of drama getting them up there because they all thought it was the real ones. I took them to the head the head Lama who was his name was Lama Gershi, and I didn't get the reaction I was expecting. He was like. Why do we want these? Our village is happy. Everything's happy. These will bring change in our village. And I'm not sure. And so I was quite surprised. He said, go away and I'll come back and think about it. So we did. And then the next day he said, yes, I understand that you want to bring the few tourists up here and that will help our village. So I'll give you my blessing. And they've been up there ever since. And and it has restored their little income. People go up and and see them. Uh, The huge... Uh, American TV show called Finding Bigfoot did a um, flew all the way to Nepal and they trekked all the way up to Pangbashe and they took a 
a team of about 70 people and they um, looked at my hand and they they concluded it was real for their television series, even though I told them I'd made it or where workshops had made it. But uh, anyway, that um, just gave them even more more ideas for people to go up there and, and visit it. So um, it's restored their little income. Wow, what a crazy story. Another one of your, your crazy stories. <laughs> um, and, and probably now, you know, there's a, a, you know, something obviously happened with you before all this sort of happened, and that's probably the craziest story of all. Um, and I, I wonder if you can share a little bit about your, 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 your plane crash. Yeah, so that was yeah that was pretty um, pretty crazy. Uh, so I was flying or ferrying a, a small air, aircraft for a company called Great Barrier Airlines, and we were going from San Francisco to Hawaii, and we had all the checks done, everything was done properly, and um, they pulled all the seats out of the aircraft. It was a twenty-one seater, and they put five huge fuel tanks inside this thing. Uh, the engineers checked it, we we tested it, everything seemed to be going all right. Um, we got airborne. Uh, got past halfway and then the ferry system of all the fuel inside the aircraft started flying really slowly and then stopped flowing basically and we were 145 miles off the coast of Hawaii and we had made a choice to ditch in the sea under control while we still had some some usable fuel we still had three hours of fuel in the aircraft but we just couldn't access it all so um, we ended up ditching and uh, pretty horrendous accident um you know I, we got pinned in the aircraft underwater uh and right at the last moment i couldn't get out um the impact was so horrendous that it shredded all my clothes off me um and then we were pinned in this aircraft and i remember just a very calm thought came into my mind that if i took a huge deep breath of water into my lungs i'd be at peace and when I relaxed and I just accepted the fact this is my fate and I took this huge breath, uh, expecting it to be water, and it was air. And right at that particular moment, the aircraft had bobbed back out of the water and I managed to take a, put my lips to the ceiling and took a huge breath. Um, and they're very, very dramatic rescue. Um, got out of the aircraft, got into the life raft. Three of us survived uh, and there's only three on board, which was great. And then a, um, the Coast Guard vectored a ship towards us. Um, in the meantime, there's still F-15s flying around us and a Hercules and all that sort of stuff. And we got on board a ship called the Columbus Canada and they took us all the way back to Los Angeles. So it was a nine-day trip back to Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, and that that was definitely a crossroads in my life. Um, and I think my life could have gone either way. And I'm lucky it, it, it's gone a really good way. So um, yeah, that was... That was, and if anything, I took away from that it was just how short life is. Life can change in a, in a split second, and mm. I need to make the most of my life. Tell the truth. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I read that you, you, you were you know, once you realised that you know you're going to have to have to you know essentially crash the plane. What did you call it in the water? What did you call it? Uh, ditch it. Ditch it. Ditch the plane in the water, um, and that obviously you were in radio contact with um, with Coast Guard or um, you know whoever pilots are talking to air control probably. Yeah, um, yeah. And, Coast, uh, Coast Guard. Yeah, and uh, they sent a Hercules out next to you and. Um, and and didn't the the, the Hercules um, pilot told you to lift the landing gear up because it would smooth your landing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I wrote uh, this. That actually, hang on. This is um, that's my first book. 
mm-hmm. and it's all in there. But um, yeah, no, he pulled alongside. Well, two, first of all, two F-15s found us. That's, F-15s a, that's a fighter jet, is it? There's a two fighter jets, yeah. And they um, they came out with on their lockdown shootdown radar, so they could find a target, and they found us real quick. And then the Hercules turned up. And, um, yeah, he said, oh, your wheels are down. It's imperative. You've got no chance of survival if you don't retract your undercarriage. And I had to tell him it's locked and fixed in place. <laughs> and he was, he, uh, yeah, he put his foot in his mouth big time then. Yeah, <laughs> it was quite funny. And so, and so you're in communication with them and then, um, you know, you're, 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 you're having to, to land. And I, obviously they know where you are, but they've got to, they've got to get to you. And I, I, I read that the, um, the Coast Guard that found you said that, you know, out of the hundreds of planes that have crashed there, you're one of the first survivors that ever found. Yeah. Yeah, he he, uh, he said to me, his name, I can't remember his name, it was Dave, oh, I can't remember his last name, the, the colonel that was flying the um, uh, the actual Hercules. He said, we know 350 aircraft have gone down off this, off this coast, Mike, and this far out, and uh, over a 1,000 people have vanished. You guys are the only ones that ever survived. How did you do it? Please tell us. And I said, we were not afraid to put out an emergency call early. We asked for help early. He goes, mm. well, that's fantastic because we never – ever see this we we're always looking for wreckage you know we never ever be able to, uh, can you know get this far so um yeah that was one thing is, is putting your hand up and asking for help early yeah so, there's a metaphor in that as well gosh um and and how long are you in the life raft for before the the boat gets there Oh, we were only probably about an hour fifteen, oh, okay. but it was wow. enough. To, it was enough to go into shock. I mean, it was quite well. When I say cold, it's probably seventeen degrees, sixteen degrees, seventeen degrees. But you know, I didn't have. I lost my jeans and my t-shirt was all ripped off me and and that sort of stuff. So I, you know, I was going into into shock quite badly. Um, and then a, the big ship came along in Columbus, Canada, and we, we signaled with a torch, and they signaled back, and they'd pick us up in the trough um, at the top, and then they'd lose us in the in the trough. And they, um, yeah, they um, uh, pulled up alongside, and they sent out this little tiny um, tender, and the tender picked us up and took us back to the container ship. And I don't know if you've seen those ships. They're huge. And they threw a rope ladder over the side, and then they said, climb the rope ladder, otherwise, um, real quick, otherwise the the tender is going to go away from the ship and come back and slam into the side and it's going to kill you. And I remember thinking, after all this, I'm going to get killed in my underpants. And I thought, right, so I climbed up the ladder. I didn't need to be told twice. Got up the top. I collapsed onto the floor of this deck of the ship and a shiny pair of shoes, um, two of them appeared in front of my eyes. And so this guy picks me up. And as he picks me up, he's German and he's the first officer of the ship, or first mate, and he said in his thick German accent, he goes, where are you from? And I went, oh, I'm from New Zealand, thank you so much for rescuing us, you saved our lives. And, and, and you could see the, the English translation and what he was thinking, he sort of looked at me and then he go, and there's a pause and he goes, oh, you're a Kiwi, we've rescued heaps of you Kiwis. <laughs> and and they had and and um, I think as a nation, man, we just we're we're quite lucky as a nation. We get out and we give it a go. And sure enough, in the, in their officers' mess, they had all these plaques and all these yachts that they had actually saved. Wow, so. wow, an incredible story. And yeah, and that was before you ended up. Um, you know, you still went on to to become a, a commercial airline pilot even after that. That didn't didn't deter you. No, I was always had a passion for flying, and I love flying. It was, um, you know, interesting enough in the in the interview for the airline job. That's the first question they asked: is tell us, have you had any incidents or, or events? <laughs> and so that took that took up a lot of the. Um, well, what they did ask, and one very serious question, they said, "What did you learn from it?" Which is really great. And I said to them, um, 
look, in hindsight, what would you have done differently? He said, uh, said, in hindsight, I would have done heaps of things different. But when I look back at it, there wasn't any glaring errors that we made. It was an engineering error that the engineers made that we bore the brunt for. So I wouldn't go back there. But what I have learned is how I handle myself in that situation. And it's not saying that I do handle myself the same in the next emergency situation, but more than likely I would. And I think that's a really lesson because not many of us actually have uh, get to see ourselves in that situation. Mm. So, yeah, and they, and they like that answer. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I mean, that's a hell of a story. They probably don't expect many people to say they've, you know, they've crashed and ditched their plane before um, in an interview with Air New Zealand. But, uh, yeah, again, a, a hell of a story. Um you've been successful in a number of different sort of pursuits with, you know, mountaineering, running, you know, obviously professionally, um, a parent. Are there some key things that have helped you sort of, you know, traverse these several different sort of, um, you know, uh, endeavours and allow you to be successful at all of them? Key things? Um, I'm not, I don't know. I'm lucky I've found a partner who supports me in that way but like Wendy doesn't want to do the adventures herself but she likes the adventures and lives vicariously through me with the with the adventures um and so then that gives me the opportunity to try and push what she wants to do like she's passionate about Scottish castles you know we have to we have to have all we all have to have our own dreams and our own goals um, and so I'm lucky that I've, I've got that level of support, to tell the truth. That's, that's, that's number one. But then at the same token, I found that the more I give, the more I get back. So the more, you know, so Wendy's been, for example, she's been to Scotland uh, three times and loves it, absolutely loves it, wants to go back on a, another adventure over, over there to Scotland. I don't want to go to Scotland. That's not my thing, you know. I mean, it would be interesting, but it's not on the top of my bucket list. And so the more I give to her, the more she gives back to me, and then the merry-go-round goes like that. And I think when you come from that point of view, I think that's that works really well. I'm lucky I've found my purpose, um, and my purpose of what I want to do is just to have an exciting, interesting life where I'm surrounded by my family and my friends and have adventures at the same time. And I think that is the priority. So if I prioritise anything, it would be my family and my loved ones and my friends and then having adventures. And somehow I've managed to, 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 to um, fix that, you know, put that all in place. Mm. I started a little little business called High Adventure Tours, um, and I got a little website, and then it was all going really well. And because I've got so many contacts in in Kilimanjaro and in Nepal, I can put people onto the organise the most amazing trips for them, where they're not going to get ripped off. They're going to pay the proper price, um, and they're going to have the most amazing adventure. Um, and that was going great guns until uh, January 2020. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's what I like to get back into as well, is, is just organising some trips and doing some some more trips with people um, and seeing people, seeing their belief change in themselves when they're trekking away to base camp or up to Kilimanjaro. It's just incredible. It's, it's magic. It really is. Yeah, I honestly think, you know, it's not a, it sounds like a cliche, but I honestly believe it. The, the ultimate success you can feel, I think, is when you help someone else do something, make them feel successful. You know, yeah. the, 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 I don't know what it is, the, 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 the endorphins or the, the emotion that, that, that you get to enjoy when, when someone you've helped or worked with has, has succeeded in something they didn't think they could do is, um, is yeah. indescribable. 
Yeah, and that's the job of a good leader is, is bringing other people up and make and you know watching them grow. And I'm lucky; I've had some really good leaders that have taught me that and have have done that for me. And so, you know, I've got teams that I've talked to Everest ten years ago, and some of them are still some really close friends of mine, and we still get together for reunions. And I think when you sit in your rocking chair and, and you're you're ninety and you're telling your grandkids stories. Um, these, you know, going to Kilimanjaro and summoning Kili or going on a safari in, in, in Africa and Tanzania afterwards or going to Everest Base Camp, those are going to be some of the stories that you'll be telling in that rocking chair and uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And, and mm. I like being able to facilitate that for people, I really do. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it as well. Just you know, thinking about that. I mean, it's the ultimate way to to measure a life well lived, isn't it? Is to think about, you know, how would you reflect on it if you're if you if you're sitting at the end looking at it, and if you can spend the rest of your life trying to make sure that that conversation's a um, a positive one rather than a negative one, then um, you're probably moving yeah. in the right direction at <laughs> and, least. And that's why, like what you do with journaling, that um, and you know, planning your day and doing that sort of stuff, you're making the most of your time, you know, because. I tell you what, there's not a single day in my journal that's that's blank. Um, I've always got heaps to do, and so even even though my wings are clipped and I I can't go and travel overseas on my adventures, there's still tons of tons of stuff I have to do. So mm. I think that's a that's a really good way to get, make the most of, of, of your life as well. Yeah, time. Yeah, I was I was taught. Uh, yeah, people always talk about time management. You can't actually manage time. You can only manage yourself. Time doesn't care what you each one do. So you have to try and manage yourself. Hey, what's next for you? You, you know, obviously you've talked about riding this motorcycle in this in this valley. It's you must have itchy feet, I'm sure. Oh, uh, well. So in my in the second book, um, this one, the the high adventure. Uh, each of my kids got to go to see Everest when they were seven, write a passage, compulsory, got to go and do it. And believe it or not, they loved it. Um, so when they turn 14, they get to choose another adventure. So my daughter, um, and but it's got to have three things. It's got to be outside the limits of what's possible. It's got to be, um, so you don't think you can do it. It's got to be uh, good for a community. And so it's got to be good for someone else. And Wendy's got to approve it. So my daughter, and she's on the cover, uh, she went to base camp and she paddled the world's highest lake. Um, so she, we took stand-up paddleboards. It was her idea. And I, I, me- I remember her coming to me and showing me this satellite photo of this lake next to Everest. And she goes, Dad, we'll do a stand-up paddle of that lake. I'll, and she goes, I'll do it. And I said, how are we going to get the paddleboards there? And she goes, don't worry. And one of my friends is called German Sherpa. And he goes, she goes, we'll borrow German's yaks. And we'll borrow one of his yaks. And he can take the, sh- and the yak can take the paddleboard. And that's what we did. We went in up there 17,500 feet on a semi-frozen lake. She paddled around and has got the world's record for the world's highest paddle. And so that was she was 13. My uh, other son, he climbed Kilimanjaro with me. And he and we we just did it together, two of us. And he um, took a board game to the summit, and he played the uh, the world's highest game of guess who. Um, so, which is great because he got really good leverage on TV um, and raised uh, money for uh, the Auckland City Mission. And so I've got one more child to do, and he's his one has been delayed. So we're just going through that process now of what finding his passion, what he wants to do, and and this sort you of stuff. You don't know what it is yet. So, well, he might come to um, 
he's a bit competitive, so we might go to Everest Base Camp and guide a whole lot of people up, mm-hmm. and then him and I might just disappear afterwards and climb a little uh, peak next to Everest um, and do, do it that way. It's a safe one, no crevasses, mm-hmm. limited avalanche risk, and take the whole of Sherpa with us so that it can help us keep us safe. So that's yeah. number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is family. Uh, you travel with a the family. They, they're all itching to go, so I can't really go. I, I don't want to go on my own. Uh, and then the last one is... Um, this motorbike in probably 2024. Um, yeah, so Google Sky Caves in the Mustang Valley. Mm. And there's 10,000 caves where the Buddhists lived um, probably 2,000 years ago. Uh, and they would pull up the ladders on these cliffs so that the marauders from Tibet couldn't go and attack and kill them. And out of 10,000 caves, only 600 have been explored. So we're going to go and explore some unexplored caves. Wow. So you got two years to learn to ride a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's exceptional. Do you get scared at all? Like, um, you know, like when you're doing some of the stuff and especially when your kids are involved, I know you want to mitigate risk and, you know, I'm not, not asking about that. I'm more asking is it, does it still scare you at all? I, you have to you have to be scared and you have to have um, otherwise you're not going to respect you know the fear you've got to respect that fear and especially with children holy smoke yeah when you mm. take them to altitude you know I've got um, you know a doctor on 24/7 coverage on a satellite phone if I need them you know I have all the medications and just in case and I've got insurance to get them out with helicopters if, if that's the case and we go really slow got lots of experience and so I mitigate the risks like that but there is still risk and yet it does worry me but with altitude if you go slowly and you you don't climb when you're sick or when you're not feeling well or weather's bad then the risks are quite reduced mm-hmm. and if you if you take on and, and sort something out when it's this big you know, even when it gets to this big, you can still cope with it but then it's going to turn into a major but it doesn't have to, you don't have to wait till it's massive and you can't, you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that uh, you know, you talked about that you know that momentary courage. I think that uh, people often can confuse it. Courage doesn't mean you're not scared. It means that you are scared and you and you sort of do it anyway because it's worth it. Yeah, and I think at the moment, um, especially in this PC world, I think it's really important. And uh, Jordan Peterson talks about this that it is very, very important to take um, safe, calculated risks. It is super important. Otherwise, mm. you're never going to do anything. If, you, if you're if you a kid and you don't go and build a jump in your backyard or on your driveway and try and jump over it in your bike and, and fall off and hurt yourself, you know, that's what kids should be doing. But at the moment, we're like, oh, don't do this. No, can't do that. You know, might hurt yourself, etc. You have to take good, safe, calculated risks. And that's what I do, you know. Mm. So the yeah. thought of a motorbike in Nepal, everything's a 30K. Everything is at 30 kilometers an hour, and they they see motorbikes. You know, motorbikes, they, they see them over there, and you beep your horn all the time. In New Zealand, no one sees motorbikes. You know, it's, it's totally mm. different. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I can't wait to uh, – like, if I'm completely honest, I don't think my uh, my <laughs> I'll be joining you on a motorbike, but <laughs> I look forward to, uh, to to watching how that unfolds. Um, a couple things to finish off. Um, what are you most proud of? You know, when you look back, there's all these, these, these magnificent feats, but in a, as you reflect on – you know, a life, you know, extremely well lived. What are you most proud of? If totally honest, totally honest with you. The fact that I can walk down into a surf club and my 19 year old um, son comes up, gives me a big hug in front of everybody. That's the thing I'm most proud of. Hands yeah. down, hands down. And my daughter's the same and my youngest is the same. That's, 
doesn't even come close to Everest. So I'm quite proud of the time I've spent with him. And I think I was very scared about being a dad because my dad left when I was 10. I never saw him again. Um, so I didn't know what to do as a dad. And so I spent a lot of time reading books and going on courses. And I, the couple of things I worked out was you have to have family traditions, doesn't matter what they are, just something that your children are going to remember. So I got some quite you know, interesting ones for us. And the other one was kids spell love. T-I-M-E, nothing else. And so that's, that's the most important thing for me. Mm. Yeah, mate, that's incredible. I had another guest on the podcast and he said that, um, you know, the, I said, I said, when, have you, when do you feel most successful? Well, I said, how do you measure success? And he said, if your kids want to spend time with you. And that's really, really what it comes down to. And yeah, yeah kids spell love, T-I-M-E. That's a, a fantastic uh, analogy. What do you wish everyone knew? You know, like if you could whisper into the world, <laughs> if, 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 if Michael Allsop was to, you know, give advice to the world that would, that would make it better, you know, what would you, what would you tell people? I don't think Michael Allsop would give advice to make it better like that. But if I could tell somebody and, and tell people uh, is just, you have no idea of, of the capability that sits inside us as human beings. And it's just unleashing that belief. Once you start believing in yourself and you change all your beliefs, you know, you, you can do anything you want. You know, you really can. As long as you've got the determination and the guts and the belief, you can do anything you want to. You know, we human beings are incredible. Yeah, mate, it's a, a lovely way to put it. And, uh, mate, if, if, if you're anyone, anything to stand by, it's certainly um, you're living proof of that, uh, of that very statement. So, look, Mike, I'm incredibly grateful for your time. Um, you've, you've mentioned your books. Um, tell us, uh, where can we get the books? What are they called? Well, um, they sort of, they're out of the bookstores now, but any bookstore you can, um, uh, you can order them or any library's got them. That's my second book. That's more mm. about kids and, and adventures with children. Yeah. That's my first one. That's sort of, that's, is that the one you've got? Yeah, high altitude yeah. and high adventure for people just yeah. listening. Yes, yeah. yeah. so high altitude, that's the that's the number one. That That's uh, that's the crazy one with lots of crazy stories that you won't believe. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. If there's any more, I'll fall off my seat, that's for sure. Gosh <laughs> almighty. Hey Mike, um, again, I'm incredibly grateful for your time, uh, for sharing. You've you've done some stuff that is that is far beyond belief, and and you know now the you, know, you obviously share your story uh, so openly, and um and and I think that you know we talked about success is, is helping other people be successful, and um, I think you're certainly taking that box as well. So mate, keep on doing the the amazing work you're doing, and uh, thank you for your time, and uh, I look forward to seeing how the next adventures unra- unravel. Awesome. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. See ya. And there we go. Mike Allsop. How cool is that guy, eh? Imagine him being your dad. Far out. Cool story and and, and very, very inspirational. And um, obviously, thank you so much to Mike for his time today. And of course, thank you to you for checking out the Road to Success podcast. And if you did enjoy today's episode or any other episode of the Road to Success podcast, if you could do one of three things, it would just be the best. I would love you forever for it. Those three things. Firstly would be follow the podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just hit the follow button. The second would be to please rate the podcast. Wherever you find your podcast, again, there'll be the ability to rate the podcast. So just hit that and leave a positive review. And the last thing would be just to share the episode. Again, just hit the share button wherever you listen to your podcast and send it to someone that you think may enjoy this episode and Mike's story. 
Also, of course, thank you to Celebrity Speakers. They are the sponsor of the Road to Success podcast. And um, look, I do a bit of work as a speaker for Celebrity Speakers. And um, certainly from the speakers uh, side of it, they're absolutely incredible. They take care of everything. They're flawless in their communication. And um, I can imagine if you're putting on an event that they're going to be exactly the same from your side of the equation as well. So if you're interested in having Mike or any of their speakers, then please just head to celebritiespeakers.co.nz and inquire with the team. Until then, thank you so much for listening to the Road to Success podcast. I love you so much. I really do. I really, really do. Take care. See ya. Bye.